Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. In the wake of these elections, Belarusians have taken to the streets with mass protests and strikes. The violence against these peaceful protesters was shocking and unacceptable. Welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. Nice to be back. Hope you managed to get at least a brief break too. And that you enjoyed the first episode of our new pop-up series on the US elections, which landed on Tuesday. In this episode, we'll talk Belarus. You heard at the start of the show from European Council President Charles Michel condemning violence against protesters there. We'll look at the crisis from an EU perspective and hear from a reporter in Belarus. And we'll also hear from Germany's Environment Minister Svenja Schulze about the big hurdles facing the EU in the coming months on climate policy. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. Joining us this week, as usual, Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And with Reem still on holiday, we're joined by our man in Warsaw, covering uh, all things Eastern European, as well as energy and climate policy, among other things, Jan Chinsky. Hi, Jan. Hi. Okay, so uh, let's uh, push on and talk about the first topic, the topic that's really kind of uh, dominating things in European politics at the moment, and that's the crisis in Belarus. Jan, it's a place you know pretty well. Do you want to give us just a very quick uh, potted summary for people who have managed to switch off a bit over the summer uh, and give us a sense of of Belarus and what it's like, because I know you've been there uh, many times. It all dates back to last Sunday's uh, presidential election, where um, Alexander Lukashenko, who's been in charge of Belarus since 1994. He's actually the longest ruling European leader, non-royal European leader. And he has held elections every five years since 94 and has won all of them with around 80% of the votes. And uh, he basically cows the opposition. The opposition is not allowed to properly organize itself. He dominates the, the media and cheats in the end to win every election. And this time he pushed a couple of his potential competitors out of the race, but he did allow the wife of one of them, uh, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, to stand as a, as a candidate. He's kind of an old-fashioned, mustachioed, macho man, and he, didn't, he completely underestimated the appeal that a fresh 37-year-old woman would have in that race. 
And she galvanized the uh, sort of growing discontent at the stagnation in Belarus uh, with a very simple election campaign that she was going to hold new elections uh, within six months if she won and was going to release all political prisoners. That was about the extent of her platform. And in the end, uh, the election, to no, no one's surprise, the final result showed an 80% support for Lukashenko, 10% for Tikhonovskaya. But there's massive cheating uh, to, to get to that result. And the country has been hit with enormous, unprecedented waves of protests. But Lukashenko shows no sign of leaving. He, um, he put the cops back on the street. Um, they're starting to arrest people again. He was, uh, just to give a little bit of background, he was legitimately popular for many years. And basically, he struck a sort of deal with his people. They kept out of politics. He ruled the country. And in return, he gave them stability, full employment, economic growth, and so life for the average Belarusian, compared to many people elsewhere in the former Soviet Union, is not actually all that bad materially. You can get a mortgage, you can drive a car, but you cannot get involved in politics. That is a very dangerous road. And this, for this year, that bargain finally collapsed. Right. And this poses a lot of questions for the European Union, you know, for its member governments, for the, the EU as a bloc. Uh, we're recording uh, late on Wednesday uh, after EU leaders held a video conference specifically about the crisis in Belarus. Very unusual for, for them to do that, but uh, I don't think they had a lot of choice. And, um, you know, what we heard was a kind of restatement or endorsement of a decision taken by foreign ministers last week to kind of set the wheels in motion to impose sanctions on certain people that uh, the EU considers responsible for electoral fraud and for uh, violence against the protesters and um, general statements of solidarity with the people of Belarus, but importantly, uh, not going as far as to say Lukashenko must go or must go now, not quite calling for uh, new elections, although some leaders individually have done that, in a sense, trying to, to kind of walk a middle road here. Um, Matt, how do you see the kind of the dilemma the EU faces and, you know, how are they playing it? Well, I think it's a, a classic EU reaction to pretty much any crisis is to just kind of muddle your way through. And, you know, there, there, there's not a lot of... Uh, courage in these statements that they put out or clarity. And I, I think the reality is that a lot of members don't really care that much about Belarus or what happens there. They consider it to be in the Russian sphere. And yeah, there was actually just to interrupt briefly, there's an interesting kind of telling comment from Thierry Breton, the, you know, the French European commissioner, who said in an interview that, that Belarus wasn't Europe, that it was, you know, next to next to Europe and next to Russia. Eurasia. Right. Part of and, the Eurasian and, Union. And, you know, I just uh, kind of added that to just kind of make the point that you're making that for a lot of people, this is not really their patch and they're uncomfortable getting too involved in it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, this is just the reality. I mean, most Europeans have never been there. There aren't very close relations. They've already been isolated. So I don't know what these sanctions are going to do. It's all very kind of symbolic in nature. I think that there had been some hope in recent years that there would be a thawing, that they could reach out to Lukashenko and they could, you know, try to, 
you know, improve relations to some degree. But overall, it feels like it's a place which is very far away. I think that uh, from a Berlin perspective, from, uh, you know, the government perspective here, they're very concerned about provoking the Russians. They want to avoid doing that. Um, they worry that the uh, Poles in particular and that the Lithuanians to a lesser degree are already uh, kind of overstepping certain bounds. And so I think that the strategy right now, especially with Berlin holding the EU presidency, will uh, be to do as, as little as possible to avoid rocking the boat too much. Well, that's some serious siren action you've got going on uh, nearby, uh, Matt. Uh, you, may be, you may need to make a sharp exit. We'll understand if you, uh, you know, if you had to have to make a run for it. But this is it, Jan. And I guess um, how, you know, in your trips to, to Belarus, how much do people look to the EU or, or look to Europe? And how much leverage does, does Europe really have in this situation? The EU anyway. I mean, Europe has some has some leverage because there are economic ties, um, but there's quite a big difference. A lot, a lot of people make the comparison with the Maidan movement in, in Ukraine in, in uh, 2013 and 14, where there was definitely, especially among the protesters in Kiev, there was a, a, a sort of a, a strong pro-European element. You'd see EU flags and there was this you know, association agreement with the EU and that, that was one of the drivers um, you don't see any of that in these current demonstrations. It's not that they're anti-European, it's that they're much more focused on Belarus. And so you just see Belarusian flags, the, 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 the opposition flags, the red-white banners. And uh, I guess like Ukrainians in the past, the Belarusians aren't particularly anti-Russian. Almost everybody speaks Russian on an everyday basis. They've got a lot of political and cultural links. Russia keeps the whole place afloat. Uh, one of the main exports of, of Belarus is refined crude. They get discounted crude from uh, from the Russians. They refine it in their refineries and they sell it onto the West. So they, they need Russia. They're, they're very close to the Russians. And I think the, there's a recognition, especially after what happened in Ukraine, that the Europeans have to be very careful about not stepping in if they can't back up their offer with either money or power, and they are not, they don't have the resources or the will to do either of those things in Belarus. So, so there's, it's quite dangerous for the Europeans to be offering lifelines to the opposition to jump in and start, start moderating and intervening and, and setting up talks and that sort of thing. This isn't really their show. Right. So Plus it can be counterproductive, right? Because the more involved they are, the more that Lukashenko and Putin and others can say, there you go, foreign plot. It's, uh, you know, the West trying to take over here. And that gives them kind of ammunition for the, the arguments that they make, right? That's exactly the argument that Lukashenko is using. He's switched very much in the last couple of days to that narrative that there's an external foe to Belarus. It's coming from Lithuania and Poland. It's NATO troops, uh, money, organizers, that sort of thing. None of that is true, but it does allow him to frame Tikhonovskaya and the opposition as fundamentally disloyal to Belarus. And this is a way of well as well of entangling the Russians if he can if he can make that argument. So if the EU does step in in a big way that does feed that narrative that that Lukashenko is trying to sell as a as a reason for him to uh, to stay on in power. I mean, it's it's this kind of European, if you like, the the sort of paradox in that uh, you know it likes to see itself as a union of values that regards values as very important. Uh, clearly, you know that means they should be on the side of the opposition here, but at the same time, in terms of its interests and also its ability to influence events. Uh, you know, it probably looks at things from quite different point of view. And that's what we're seeing, a kind of effort to try and balance those things, as it feels anyway. Uh, one final thing to say, although I think Lukashenko 
is widely regarded as Europe's longest serving leader. We should mention for our Montenegrin listeners that Milo Djukanovic, I think, has been pretty much consistently in power in Montenegro for even longer. But sometimes he has kind of done it from behind the scenes. So Lukashenko, I think, in terms of continuous rule in office, is the longest serving European leader. But Djukanovic is up for re-election in a couple of weeks, so he may outlast Lukashenko uh, yet. Anyway, um, Matt, sorry, you wanted to talk about uh, Iran, which is, and that's kind of coming to a head. We've talked about that on and off on the podcast over the past year, really. But things are coming to a head now. Can you give us a, you know, the potted summary with the the uh, snapback sanctions? Right. Yeah. Without getting into the minutia of it, we're basically expecting that uh, the American Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will go to New York and trigger these so-called snapback sanctions. This would essentially force the UN, or at least this is how the US sees it, would force the UN Security Council to reimpose all of the sanctions um, against Iran that existed before the Iran nuclear deal that the US initially signed on to with European powers and then subsequently pulled out of under President Trump. I think the, the interesting thing about this is that it puts the Europeans in a particularly difficult position here because they've been trying to keep the Iran deal alive ever since the U.S. said that it was pulling out of it. But they have a bigger sort of worry in this context, which is the credibility of the U.N. Because from a legal standpoint, I think most people would tell you that the U.S. is within its right to exercise this snapback. And, uh, you know, the, the question is, if they do it, will the Europeans follow the sanctions or not? And if they don't, they, on the one hand, are undermining the credibility of the UN system. And it also puts the Europeans on the side of the Russians and Chinese and against its uh, against their sort of traditional American ally here. So it's a very complicated um, sort of set of circumstances, and it could get very uncomfortable, I think, for the European powers involved, uh, which are France and the UK as the permanent members of the Security Council and Germany, which is currently a, a non-permanent member of the Security Council. And how do you think the Europeans you know, are going to, have you been talking to people, do you get a sense of how they're going to play it? Well, I think that they're hoping basically that Donald Trump won't be reelected and they're going to play for time here. I, you know, the, the one thing that they have in their favor is that there isn't, you know, really a, a court or there just, there isn't a court that you can take this to and some judges are going to decide this. It's a political decision at the end of the day. And I think they will make all kinds of legalistic arguments about why the U.S. shouldn't be, you know, permitted to do this or why it's basically not kosher to do this at this stage and just wait until uh, November and, and see see who wins and, and hope that if Biden wins that uh, he will pursue a different policy. Right, which I think is their strategy on, on quite a few things at the moment, right? Run down the clock and hope for a change in November. Absolutely. Although I, I would also say, you know, I, th I, I think, you know, as, as with a, a number of other issues that are out there, like China, for example, with 5G and, and, and other things, I'm not sure that Biden would go back to the status quo ante, as it were. I, I you know, because we know a lot more now about the uh, Iranian nuclear program than they did in 2015 when they signed on to the deal. So I think it would also be quite difficult for Biden to completely reverse Trump's position on this, especially given everything that we know about what the Iranians have been doing recently. OK, uh, I think we'll leave it there. Jan, Matt, thanks very much. 
Thank you. Thank you. And now let's take you directly to Belarus and check in with political contributor Sergei Kuznetsov, who's been covering the protests. Sergei, thanks for joining us. Can you just give us um, a summary of the situation? You know, where do things stand now? Uh, How does it feel uh, in Minsk these days? We are well into the second week of protests against the outcomes of the presidential election. The main requirement of protesters so far is the fact that the nation's law enforcers stopped using brutal violence in the streets, uh, which was observed in the, in the first days following the election. I'd like to remind that, according to official information, at least three people died during the crackdown on protesters and about 7,000 were detained and arrested. However, it looks like the protests have lost some of their steam over the past days, mostly to the fact that the authorities refuse to make any other serious concessions. Also, workers' strikes look more like scattershot acts of dozens of plants across the country. They have no serious coordination from any coordination center. This also suggests that these strikes are not as effective as they could be. Okay, and and what do the protesters want? What are their demands? Basically, Belarusian protesters and workers demand, first of all, that violence against the opposition be stopped. Then that both Lukashenko and the leadership of the Central Election Commission resign. Uh, Also, that all political prisoners be released not only those who were detained and arrested immediately after the election, but also those arrested during Lukashenko's crackdown of the opposition candidates before the election. Finally, they demand uh, that a new free and fair election be conducted. And, and what do the protesters expect from, from Russia? Russia obviously has a, a you know, very close relationship uh, with, with Belarus. What are they expecting from Russia, from Moscow? Of course, many protesters and many leaders of the opposition are afraid of uh, possible Russia's interference into the current crisis. However, uh, many of them told me over the past days that they believe that finally Russia avoid to interfere uh, On Sunday, I talked with a protester who told me that she believes that Russia should not interfere. She said, why we can't sort out our problems by ourselves? Okay, well, we'll see if um, that's how things turn out. And and what happens next, uh, Sergei? You know, where do you think things go from here? First of all, I've talked with some leaders of protests over the past days, and uh, they are going to remain active in the streets. Uh, However, it is unclear how long these protests will be able to keep their momentum uh, without any serious concessions from Lukashenko and his team. As of now, he refuses to start any negotiations, any dialogue with the opposition, even despite numerous calls from the EU leaders and the EU member states, I have a feeling that Lukashenko is ready for a new 
even more tough crackdown on his op- on his opponents in a situation when they failed to secure any serious success in the struggle against him. I can exclude that we may see unprecedented scale of repressions, not only against opposition leaders, but against civil society and also workers who were his core election base until recently. On Monday, employees of Minsk Wheel Tractor Plant, a producer of military vehicles, gave Lukashenko an especially frosty welcome when he came to address them in person. Accusing him of falsifying the elections, they chanted resign to his face, and one worker even was had saying, if you are an officer, shoot yourself. I believe unlikely Lukashenko is going to forgive such humiliation. That was Sergei Kuznetsov reporting from Belarus. And now, let's switch gears and talk climate policy. So, Kalina, you are Politico's energy reporter and climate policy guru. (laughs) Guru, well, thank you very much for that. Um, I definitely have been following climate policy for a couple of years, so I think the German Austrian.am, I'd happily stick with that rather than guru. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) You are now officially entitled to put guru on your business cards. Uh, If we're ever in a time when people use business cards and and hand them over again, let's hope we get there one day. So a few weeks ago, you sat down with Germany's environment minister, Svenja Schulze. Tell us a bit about that. What was the scene? Where did you meet her? So um, mid-July, I went to Berlin and met her in her office. Of course, all coronavirus proofed. So we were sitting very far from each other on the other side of the desk in her office, which is uh, very spacious. It was a lovely summer day. And it was great timing because I visited just a day after she had had her first informal meeting with her environment minister peers from across the EU. And it was also just two weeks after Germany took over the council presidency. And that means that she's the chair, if you like, the person in the driving seat on environmental issues. And just give us a little bit more for people who don't know her. Tell us just a very briefly a kind of pen portrait, if you like, of, of Svenja Schulze. What's her background? So Svenja Schulze has been a politician for quite a while. In terms of her politics, she's a member of the Social Democratic Party of Germany, the SPD. And she started her political career as a regional politician in the state of North Rhine-Westphalia, which I think to all of the listeners from Brussels should be familiar because it's one of the states that is bordering closest to Belgium. And after the elections in 2017, she's become the environment minister. And as such, she told me her role is to essentially annoy everybody else and make sure that the government stays on a green course. Right. And so give us the European context picture. You talked a little bit about it there. But what what are the main things that um, she's going to have to do? Why is her role important during this German presidency? So it's an interesting time in the EU climate debate because the EU is supposed to agree to increase its 2030 emissions reduction goal. It is also supposed to adopt the climate law, which was proposed by Ursula von der Leyen's commission earlier this year, to really make that objective of becoming climate neutral by 2050, or in more practical terms, to slash greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050, a legally binding commitment. So with that, Germany is very much 
in charge of making sure that the EU's climate agenda over the next decade is legally binding. And with that, the next month's set up to become quite turbulent. Right. So the two kind of key targets are net zero by 2050 and more ambitious targets to get there to be achieved by 2030. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. So the EU has a 2030 emissions reduction goal of 40% currently, but the discussion now is to raise that from 40 to as high as 55%. The issue is also internationally important because the EU's 2030 emissions reduction goal is also the commitment under the Paris Agreement. And under that climate deal, the idea is for countries to submit new and ideally higher climate pledges by the end of this year. So you see, we have these six months from July and the entire fall are quite crucial also internationally for the climate agenda. Okay, let's hear Svenja Schulze uh, describe the kind of challenge she has ahead in these uh, six months in the hot seat. We have to deliver an updated NDC in 2020. And 2020 is not only six months we have to deliver. So you're, getting, you're getting ready for tough negotiations. Yes, we need very, very tough negotiations. There are no summer holiday for everyone. So there's a lot of pressure on her to deliver these climate goals by the end of the year. What's the first big hurdle on the horizon? So the first big hurdle is coming up next month. By the end of September, the European Commission is expected to come out with a plan for reaching a higher 2030 goal. So it's supposed to map out really how could the bloc hit either 50% emission cuts or 55% emissions cuts. So that will kind of set the scene for all the discussions coming after because it will in some way already describe how difficult or how costly it will be for EU countries to really increase these emission reductions across the block. And so that's really the biggest hurdle for now. And let's hear Svenja Schulze when she talked to you, just kind of setting out why she thinks this is so important and putting it in some of the international context that you also mentioned. Our target is that we want to reach an NDC, an updated NDC in our presidency, because the Paris Agreement is very clear. We have to deliver an updated NDC in 2020. So just quickly, uh, Kalina, for those people who are not climate gurus, she used the abbreviation NDC there. What's that? That's the climate jargon, awful climate jargon. And it's supposed to mean national determined contributions. So in plain speak, it's a climate commitment or the climate pledge that countries made under the Paris Agreement. Okay, And what happens if the EU fails to come up with these uh, new objectives? Now, so that's a big worry for EU politicians is that If the EU doesn't manage to agree a higher call, it will just be a diplomatic disaster or at least a major blunder because the EU has always said they're the global climate leader, especially absent the US, which under Donald Trump has vowed to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. The EU really stepped up, tried to fill that role. So if not even the EU, the self-proclaimed most ambitious climate bloc will manage to increase its emissions reduction efforts, the concern is nobody else will. So in the EU, you have a number of camps. On the one hand, you have the progressive, or at least considered the progressive Nordic, um, largely Scandinavian countries and Western European nations, such as France, Luxembourg, Germany to some extent, Austria, Belgium, as well as the Swedens and Denmarks, um, who have been very loud pushing for higher climate targets. So they're rally around a 55% emission cut, if not more. They are, of course, also the wealthy countries. Then you have the in-between countries with Germany for a long time belonged to, which are committed to climate policy, but are wary of, or at least highly considered of, the potential economic implications for some of their sectors. 
And then you have the poorer and often coal-reliant members in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, such as Poland, especially the Czech Republic, Bulgaria and Romania and others, who very much worry about the economic implications for their sectors, for competitiveness, as well as for energy security. Because as you can imagine, they've had a long history of experience with Russia Many of them have been also um, highly dependent on Russian energy sources. So the issue of energy security, of relying on their own resources, which is often coal, plays a big role in their energy policy. What else is on her agenda? What else does she have to think about and navigate during these uh, six months? So in a way, you could argue it would almost be the easy part to just get countries to agree to a number. Of course, that's like a major, major effort. And Schultz herself has said that it's going to require very, very challenging negotiations. But that is not the entire story, because increasing the emissions reduction goal will bring with it consequences for all of the other energy and climate legislation that the EU has adopted in recent years. And so with that, for Schultz, she will also have to start discussions about what the implications of a higher goal could be for existing climate policy, including, for example, for one of the landmark climate policies of the EU, the carbon market, which puts a price on the pollution from power plants and industrial plants and is, again, in EU jargon, not called a carbon market, but the EU's emissions trading system. We must have a discussion about the emission trading system because Germany and other countries are phase-out coal firing now. If we phase-out coal firing plants, we have to discuss how that goes with the ETS. There is a system to skip that certificates out, uh, but I, we have to discuss if, if that is enough uh, to bring the ETS in the right direction because the ETS is very important. We see what the companies think, what's going on in the future, what they expect, because the price is going higher and higher. And so the companies expect that there is an agreement on a higher level. That is one of our goals, that we have a minimum carbon price, but what we want to have as a German, that's a part of our, of our planning. So Schulze, as you could hear, was talking largely about the ETS here, but of course it's not just the energy sector that will have to speed up emission reductions over the next decades if the EU really wants to become climate neutral. But the challenging aspect here, which is why it's such a major political challenge for all EU countries, is that every sector will be implicated. The transport sector will have to do more. Agriculture will have to do more. The building sector will have to do more in a sense that there will have to be more and stronger efforts to increase energy savings all across the economy. And that is called, again, there's even a name for it in the EU's legislative speak, which is called effort sharing. So how do you spread that climate effort across the EU economy? And it's a big political discussion because that's when countries will really realize what they will have to do and what this might mean for their economic sectors over the next years. We will have a discussion how we could reach a higher target for an NDC, how we could reach that target. And there is uh, the, the effort-sharing regulation, a very important one, but there are also other regulations. We have to discuss about energy efficiency. We have a discussion about that. We have to discuss about renewable energies and how to push them in EU. So I think the field is broader than only ETS and effort sharing regulation. In Germany, we start with a CO2 price for transport and for heating. 
And maybe that's a good idea for the European level too. So we should discuss also newer instruments, not only the old ones. Okay, so in a sense that all comes under the, uh, if you like, the umbrella of climate policy. What I think is interesting, having listened to your interview already, is that um, she talks about combining two of the Commission's big priorities, right, which is digitalization. So the Green Deal is one thing, digitalization is the other. And quite often, you know, they're talked about as two separate things, but she seems to see them as quite linked, right? Exactly. Schulze has the ambition to introduce a discussion about the tech sector, the digital sector's environmental footprint and potential environmental role in the environmental and climate circles of European politicians. And so in a way, merge to, as you said yourself, often separate policy areas. That's also in line with Brussels' green agenda, which under the European Green Deal aspiration has started, or at least has tried to introduce green efforts in all of the policy areas from tech to industry to anything essentially um, that Brussels can come up with. And so in February, the commission presented its long-term tech strategy, which also included climate chapters. So for example, they included a push for data centers to become carbon neutral by 2030. And she seems to have a few quite specific other ideas, right, as to how the carbon footprint of the tech sector or or of kind of digital technology generally could be reduced. Exactly. I think probably some of her ideas were inspired by our very social and digital lives now under the coronavirus crisis, where I think everybody was stuck in front of their screens for pretty much 24 hours a day, you know, trying to to stream their boredom away. And Schulze told me in our meeting that she thinks one possible effort could be to reduce the quality of streaming videos on mobile phones to help save energy. So a lot of her ideas are very much targeted at how do you improve energy efficiency of many of the digital services that we use, which use a lot of energy. And because they use a lot of energy, they also have a considerable environmental footprint. So if you target the energy saving aspects, you manage to reduce emissions without undermining any of our enjoyment of be that Netflix or whatever else. She also wants to start a discussion about how to use technology to advance environmental goals, especially by sharing data and coming up with more innovative ways of trying to reduce emissions. I think that it's very important that we discuss more about sustainability in digitalization, because Digitalization itself helps us a lot. These video conferences, the you know, whole life is now really uh, driven forward by digitalization in the corona crisis. And that there was really a boost. But digitalization, that means also that we have data centers and they have to have energy. They need energy. And to make data centers more resource efficient, to make applications more efficient. Of course, it's not going to just be the climate agenda, but Schulze, as part of the German government, will, of course, also be very busy with the broader European pandemic recovery and that whole agenda. As you know, I mean, negotiations about the EU's upcoming budget are due to start, I think, already next week. And so with that, one of the topics Schulze has been persistently pushing is that any of the recovery programs 
will have a green tint. The recovery has to be aligned with the Green Deal because it is important. We invest a lot of money now on the European level and all the environmental ministers said it very clear in the last two days. We need this money to be on the right trajectory and the trajectory is the Green Deal and the trajectory is being carbon neutral in 2050. And all what we do today that has to go in the right direction. And so it is very important what we do with this next generation plan, with this recovery package. Thanks very much for bringing it to us, Kalina. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Click some stars, write a review or send us an email with your feedback. The address is podcast at politico.eu. Ryan Heath will be with you on Tuesday with the next episode in our US election series, including highlights of the Republican National Convention. And EU Confidential will be back as usual on Thursday. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer Christina Gonzalez and to Weidong Lin. And thanks to you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.